0: Today's text is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Father. Uh, Father, we ask that these truths that we are reading would come to bear fruit in our lives. And Lord, I ask that each one of us would begin to pray that your kingdom would come in this way in our lives. Lord, we, we can't make these things happen. We can't, uh, by willpower, force the fruit of the Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask, would you, would you please help us? And Lord, give every one of us a desire to so submit to your will that the characteristics that we see jesus advocating would be present in our lives and so lord we ask for your help we ask for your grace but i pray that if possible by your spirit would it would it be even this morning as we begin to think about the, the beatitudes and this sermon would it could it possibly be that it was we would hear your voice just as clearly as if we were sitting at your feet on that hillside so long ago let your word ring true in our ears and let the goodness of your spirit rest upon your people god let your kingdom come among hope church and let your will be done and let the fruit of the spirit be manifest among us so lord help each one of us in the particular way that we need this morning some of us need healing physically. And Lord, I pray that you would grant it. Some of us need emotional healing. And I pray that you would grant it. Some of us need help forgiving family members who have wronged us and hurt us. And I, I pray, Lord, grant that forgiveness. You speak about forgiveness in this sermon. And Lord, I ask that every truth that you want to be manifested in our lives would happen. So please give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are submissive to you and your will. And give us a desire to receive this word implanted within our hearts. Not just listen to it, but receive it. And then let your word, I pray, bear fruit. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we, we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, which is uh, where we made it to last week, and we're moving through the Gospel of Matthew. So today is the Beatitudes. There are eight of them, and uh, we seem good to, to take them in two chunks. So we'll, we'll do part one today, so the Beatitudes part one today, and then Beatitudes uh, the last four next week uh, when we'll look at uh, the last four, so the first four today and the first four I mean, the last four next week is kind of where we're heading. So if you're wondering what your homework is, um, you can read verses 7 through 12. That's your homework. Um, And I I do pray that you are reading along, and it takes a little while to absorb uh, the Word of God and sit with it, meditate. Uh, let it soak into your soul. And sometimes that means reading again and again. So don't just give up on one or two readings, but read this over again and again. And it could be that by the time we get finished with the Beatitudes, you'll have this memorized. It's only 12 verses. Uh, you could do this, I think. Uh, the little kids do it every week. And, and so it's an encouragement. But I just pray, uh, dig into God's Word. But we, we are going to look at uh, the first few Uh, verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And just as a reminder of of where we started, I want to read verses 1 and 2 again to sort of serve as a kind of an introduction. Uh, Jesus is is gathered and sat down and his disciples have come around him and the crowds are around them. So 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. Uh, So one Question that everyone wrestles with when you come to the Sermon on the Mount is who's this for? Because there is a school of thought that would simply say, these are great moral values. Everybody should embrace these values, so go and do them. Whether you're a Christian or not, it doesn't matter. Just embrace these values and and do them. And I would say that's impossible. You're holding up a standard of living that spiritual people need the Holy Spirit to do and non-spiritual people are not going to do. And so this is for the disciples. So one point I just want to remind us of, Jesus sat down, his disciples saw that, they came to him, sat at their feet, and I, I, I wish we could be there. <laughs> I wish the building could just turn into that little grassy plain and we could go and sit at Jesus' feet, don't you wish you could be there? Just to hear him speak? I would, I'd pay 10 bucks if we could do that. And yet, what would the Lord have us to hear? right? The disciples came near. They were listening. They came listening, expectant. And I wonder are you expectant? When you come and gather with the people of God to worship, do you expect anything to happen? Do you expect that to be unique? Because sometimes we just show up. It's just a routine. Please don't do that. Please prepare on on whenever before life group. Pray before you gather with God's people. Pray, Lord, I'm, I'm, I need you. I mean, pray every day, all the time. But particularly, there's a manifestation of the Spirit of God when God's people comes together. Don't you feel that? Don't you love gathering with God's people? You certainly don't come here to listen to me, speak. I know that. We come because there is a benefit of, of gathering together with the Spirit, with the people of God who have the Spirit of God. And so when you, when you prepare for worship, come prayerfully expecting the Lord to do something, because He will. just uh, uh, last two weeks ago, sorry um, Someone sent me an email this past week about something that happened during the worship service a couple of weeks ago, um, and where they were out of town, and so they couldn't share at the Thanksgiving Eve service, which we have, but the Lord just, this, this, this person told me, that the Lord just touched my heart. It was during one of the prayers in the service, um, you know, and this person said, I, I was in a very dry and, and dark place and spiritually weary and... I wasn't expecting anything. And yet, when we were praying, the Lord just did something to my heart. And I, I wish that were true for every one of us every week. Just, Lord, do something. We're, we're expecting you. We, we need you. And that, that's what we see here. Jesus opens his mouth to speak. And so when God speaks, I believe things happen. He gives a command and his word goes out. People are changed. This world is changed. And so I don't come to Scripture thinking, <laughs> there's never on the Mount. Heard that 25 years ago. Got all the juice out of that we can get. Let's move on. No way. Absolutely not. The Word of God is living and active. So I invite you, pray for the Lord to do something among us as we're moving through this text. I want you to pray with me. I want you to commit over the next, I don't know how long we're going to be here. We'll figure it out along the way. But I want, I want to ask you, would you begin to pray? And here's, here's what I want you to pray. Lord, let your kingdom come among us. And by that I mean Hope Christian Church. Let your kingdom come among us. Let the principles of the kingdom of God be manifested in our lives. And and then let Him apply it. But I'm wondering, would you commit to, to praying with me? Make that a part of your prayer. It's how Jesus tells us to pray anyway, every day, right? Let your kingdom come. I just want to invite you. Be open to the movement of the Spirit of God as we move through this teaching of Jesus. So If you would join me in praying, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but make a note. Uh, Because if you don't, write it down or make a note on your phone, permission to get out your phone, right? Make a note. I I will pray this. Let your kingdom come. And then we'll see what happens. And when something does happen, I want you to tell somebody. I want you to tell someone, someone close to you. Because the Lord will do some things. And so here, Jesus sits down to teach them. His disciples come to him. So this is a sermon for the people of God, is the point. It's the first point. This is a sermon for believers. This is not a set of standards for non-believers to live to, because it can't be done without the help of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus gathers his, his disciples to him and then he begins to teach. So the, the real question is, is Jesus holding out here a list of to-dos that must be in place for you to enter the kingdom of heaven? Is that what he's doing? Or is he describing the people who are in the kingdom of heaven? Is, is this a, a job interview? Right, where you're you're understanding the requirements. Is this a job interview? Is it more like that? Or is it more like the training that happens after you've been hired? You You need to figure that out. Because if you think this is a list I have to adhere to before God will accept me, you won't make it. But if this is now a description of how a Christian is to live, I think you can hold on to that. I think you can get your head around that, and it's exactly what we see. And there's pointers that help us understand that. So th- this is a, there's two clues. Back in chapter four, verse seventeen, if you have your Bible, you can you can just look with it, at it with me. We are told that when Jesus began preaching, he said, Matthew says in four seventeen, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." So in Jesus' mind is the kingdom of heaven. That is the dominant thought in his mind as he's begun to publicly preach. The kingdom of heaven. Banner notion. And then we get another clue in verse 23. He went throughout all of Galilee, teaching and preaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing everybody. Again, the kingdom is in his mind, but now Matthew adds it's the gospel of the kingdom. And what is What is gospel? Two words, right? What is gospel? Answer me. Good news, right? It's a it's good news. The gospel means good news. That's exactly right. That notion is most fully developed in Isaiah. And, and Luke also tells us when Jesus started his ministry, after he was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, he then went into the synagogues. He tells us this here, Matthew does. He went into the synagogues and began preaching. But Matthew begins us in Capernaum, which is up on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Luke gives us a little clue of what happened in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And Jesus went into the synagogue in his hometown and they said, do you want to do the scripture reading for the day? Do you remember this passage of the scripture? And Jesus, he gets... He chooses, there's a big stack of scrolls in the synagogue, he chooses the Isaiah scroll, he opens it up, and he, he goes to Isaiah 61. I'll just read the first two verses. I want you to hear this. This shapes, what is this Sermon on the Mount? This, I believe, is in the background of Jesus' thinking that helps us understand exactly what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. So these first two verses, and again, we're in synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus is speaking. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. Anointing, probably Jesus picks this out because he's just been anointed at his baptism. But there's more to it than that. But he has anointed me for what? To bring good news to the poor. And he has sent me to bind up the broken hearted to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open prisons and and set those free, right? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He actually stops reading right there. He just stops with to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But do you hear some words in those couple of verses that you you heard in the Sermon on the Mount? Like gospel, good news, or um, poor, uh, or captives being set free, right? There's a great connection to themes that are in Isaiah 61, which Jesus speaks about when he begins preaching the Sermon on the Mount. So I think the background, if you will, the theological curtains behind the Sermon on the Mount is Isaiah 61. I think Jesus is he's fulfilling. He said this. After he read those two verses in the synagogue, he said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, they got ticked off at Jesus and ran him out of town. So part of the reason but that's why he left and went to Capernaum. But that's still in his mind. He's fulfilling Isaiah 61. So it's, it, I, I just looked. What, are, what do we see in Isaiah 61 that we also see in Matthew 5? Matthew speaks about the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. And here Jesus is bringing good news. That's mentioned in Isaiah 61. Isaiah speaks of, of also the, the ministry to the poor, preaching to the poor. Matthew, that's the first thing Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Isaiah talks about comforting those who mourn in verse 2. And then in the second beatitude, we see Jesus saying exactly the same, that those who mourn are going to be comforted. Isaiah speaks of the year of the Lord's favor, which also can be understood as connoting great blessing. And how does Jesus begin the first, 11, or first eight sentences he speaks in the Sermon on the Mountain. Blessing, blessing, blessing. The year of the Lord's blessing has begun. He then also speaks about, uh, Isaiah talks about the people receiving the wealth of the nations. It's very, very similar to those who are inheriting the earth that we see in just a little bit. And then Isaiah also talks about the people of God being the offspring or the descendants of God. And then Matthew talks about Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God. This incredible parallel, which sort of stunned me as I'm thinking through, what is Jesus doing? Well, Isaiah 61 is a messianic uh, unfolding of the kingdom. Isaiah 61 is describing what the kingdom is going to be like. I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5. He's not holding out a list of to-dos which you must check off in order to be granted entrance into the kingdom. He is saying, now that you're in the kingdom, this is how you need to live. So, and, and he sits down so sweetly and says, here's, here's my plan for you. He's explaining to the people of God how we ought to live So the Sermon on the Mount is an unfolding of the attitudes and the character of the Christian, of a follower of Jesus. And again, his disciples are seated around him. So the question is, are we embracing these qualities as as a way we ought to live? This is not a code of conduct that can be applied without the help of the Spirit of God. So when I read, if you read through, I, I read it all last week, right? I read through this entire sermon, chapters 5 to 7, 16 minutes. But when I read the Sermon on the Mount, and if you've read it and paid attention to it, do you not just come away blown away at the, at the expectations that are listed? I mean, it's staggering to me. And it could be depressing if I thought, I've got to do this my own self-will we're not left to ourselves, are we, as Christians? We are given the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're not a Christian without the presence and indwelling power of the Spirit of God. You're just a theologically educated person. But if you don't have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within you, you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not a Christian. You're, you're a learner. But you, you're not transformed. Receiving the Holy Spirit is what it means to be connected to God. You can't do that on your own. So this this message will come as a, a depressing, unbelievable high standard of righteousness without the help of the Holy Spirit and without confidence in the righteousness of Christ. So don't let this land on you as some list you have to do on your own. Hear this as a description of what we're moving towards. And if you're a Christian, you ought to be moving in this direction. That's why I want you to pray: let the kingdom come in me. Let the kingdom of God come in me. And 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 the word blessing even helps us understand this. So Jesus begins with blessed. Right? Every every command, first eight or so. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and so on. And from about, what was it, AD 400 to about 1530 or so, the Latin Vulgate was the translation of the Bible that the Christian world embraced. And the first word uh, in the Beatitudes here is Beatus. It's in, in Latin, it's Beatus. So you people heard beatus this and beatus that. So we, it's come to be called, they got transliterated into English, as beatitudes. It's, it's the, the Latin word for blessing and favor. And, and so the, the, the Vulgate had such a tremendous impact. That's how the name of this first introduction to the sermon is called the Beatitudes, is, is a carryover from the Latin. But the Greek word makarios, which means blessed, actually describes the favor of God on a person that abides on someone, uh, who, and, and therefore they're happy, right? The, the favor of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor, that's described and in, contained in this word uh, that's blessing, and it doesn't invoke a blessing as if, if you do this, you'll be blessed. It pronounces something that's already present. So it is, you are blessed, So this, you are blessed, those who are poor in spirit, because yours is the kingdom of heaven, for example. The blessing already abides. God's favor is already there. So it's not a conditional promise of some future blessing if you maintain good behavior. It's it's a sharing of what is already true about the people of God. You are blessed it's not if you do this, you'll get into the kingdom and then you'll be blessed. It's you're in the kingdom and you are blessed. You just don't know it. <laughs> and so here Jesus is, is helping us understand the ways in which the people of God are blessed. So this is an exposition of the character of the Christian. It, it's a sharing of how the Christian ought to live. That's what Jesus is doing. He's describing the kingdom and the kind of people who live in it who are part of it. And so let me give you a quick outline of what we see here in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Uh, the general characteristics are the opening of, of chapter 5, or the, the Beatitudes, you might say, uh, and then verse all the way through verse 16 describes the character of the Christian in this world and also the response of the world towards that character, which is not good, by the way, and we'll get there. And then in verses 17 to 48, Jesus gives case studies of how that gets lived out. That's what he's doing. So he, he talks about uh, response to anger. How does the Christian deal with anger? How does a, a Christian deal with lust and divorce and swearing and retaliation and so on? And, and that's the rest of chapter 5 as a kind of case study of the implications of Christian character being worked out in the world. Then in chapter 6, he tells us This is what it's like to constantly live under the watchful care of God. And in chapter 6, what stunned me in reading through that is about five times or so, God is described as the rewarder. He's he's the grand rewarder. And the purpose of Jesus' exposition in chapter 6 is to help you maximize your reward before him. Jesus does not picture God as some old white-haired grump, uh, you know, up in the attic waiting to squash your joy. He he does not. He says, here's how you can get the greatest blessing from the Lord, because He rewards you. So live your life in such a way that you will be rewarded by Him. It's a fascinating description of God the Father. And then in chapter 7, we see several other various aspects of Christian character um, in of people in the kingdom of God like how to judge, how to pray how to treat one another, how to discern false teachers and how to prepare for eternity. So there's a quick outline of, of what we see and so now let's jump into uh, the first one. Uh, verse 3 the first, the first blessing, Right, these are blessings, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven We saw this word back in Isaiah 61 where the poor are mentioned. I think Jesus is carrying over the same idea. This this has nothing to do with economic policy. This has everything to do with a spiritual disposition. He's not saying you're blessed if you're in poverty, as in you have no money. He is saying when you are in spiritual poverty, that describes the people who are in the kingdom. And what does that mean? That means... People who are spiritually impoverished mean they understand I possess no righteousness to commend me to God the Father. I'm not trusting in my own self-righteousness so that when I stand before the Lord, He'll say, well, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, and so you can enter. That is not what we're talking about. Jesus is saying those who are spiritually impoverished and realizing because of my sin... I deserve to be eternally separated from the Lord. And yet, I'm going to bank on the grace of God the Father. I'm trusting in His grace. The confidence is in God who gives the blessing, not in the the spiritual production of some holiness or righteousness. Now, don't hear me saying you should never do anything righteous. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's not the ground of your salvation. So here, a person who is understanding poverty in spirit or poor in spirit is trusting in the Lord, humble before him because of his holiness and the absence of his holiness in our lives. And so this word sometimes is translated as humble, as in Isaiah 66, 2, which God says this, This is the one to whom I will look. Don't you want God looking at you in favor? That's, That's what we're talking about here. This is the one to whom I will pay attention. You want God paying attention to you? I, I do. do. You want the Lord? I will, I will. This is the person over whom I will watch is what he's saying. And then he describes him. A person who is humble. And there's the word. Poor. Poor in spirit. Who's humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Someone who reverences God's word deeply is humble towards him. That's what he's speaking about. This is a person who knows my sin, God cannot tolerate. And and if he leaves me to myself, I am out of his presence forever. And yet, this person then trusts in the Lord saying, the the implicit nature is, will you give me righteousness? Righteousness. Will you make me acceptable in your sight? Or as the psalmist would say, will you atone for my sins? Which is exactly what the Messiah comes to do. And so he's pointing out, this is a person who trusts in the Lord, who has faith in God. And what does he say? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And notice, present tense, is. Theirs is the kingdom. They're in it. And here, we're going to have a tension between present and future because this first beatitude, this first blessing, talks about present tense. There's is the kingdom. All, the other six, all the way until the very end, will talk about future tense. They shall be blessed or they shall be comforted. So we're, And the final beatitude, the final blessing, goes back to the present tense, talking about there's is the kingdom. You're is in the kingdom again. And so we have this sense of the already and not yet, as theologians would call this, inaugurated eschatology, meaning the kingdom has come, but hasn't come yet in its fullness. Meaning the spirit of God has been given to us, and yet there's still a whole lot of work to do. And can anybody agree with that in your own personal life? Like, yes, I have been changed as a Christian, but does that mean all the change is done? Sanctification is complete? No, absolutely not. We're all of us. We're still a work in progress. So a transforming work has done and it is still going. So that's the tension between the kingdom of, yes, we're in the kingdom. And yet there's still ways in which the full blessings of the kingdom have not yet fully come. So blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And secondly, verse 4. Um, we get the, the blessing of those who mourn. Uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that's sweet when you're one who is mourning. Uh, there's really not any context here. Jesus doesn't flesh this out, even though I'm quite certain he, he may have. Right? When, you, when you think about the Sermon on the Mount, it took me 16 minutes last week to read it in front of you. I don't think that's all Jesus said that day. 16 minutes. Okay, people, go home. Yeah, go get a sandwich. We're all done. Uh, the, one time in Matthew, he was three days with people. He did a three-day conference, and then at the end of it, he fed everybody. Uh, you remember that. So Jesus said more, I'm sure. But here, what does this mean, blessed? Who, who are the mourners? What are they mourning for? And if I'm right that Isaiah 61 is the context, and we see it in verse 2 of chapter 61 in Isaiah, he says this. Those who are mourning shall be comforted. So I think that's in his mind. And, and in Isaiah 61, there are those who are broken-hearted are mentioned, those who are, are mourning, those who are oppressed, and, and those who are grieved at sin. Those are the three things that I, I saw in Isaiah 61 that might give context to those who are mourning. So what are they mourning for? Brokenheartedness. the context is, is probably uh, oppression from a foreign country a foreign nation that they may have been taken over and so the broken heartedness might result in death or loss it, it could be the broken heartedness comes from, from experiencing a loss of a loved one uh, to death or, or capture and imprisonment it could be so that, that's part of the context of who will be comforted those who are broken hearted that's some of you in this room anybody broken hearted Not to raise your hand, but we we have people we're missing, right? I can't tell you what six or seven of you have lost parents in this past year. You've you've said goodbye to your parents or grandparents or those who are close to you, right? Death is is around us. We don't. It's the the kingdom is here. We we have hope, but yet we're still we still grieve. We're still brokenhearted, and so we need to be comforted. And those who are oppressed by others that. Sometimes people are just harsh and mean and rude. And we, we have to live under that kind of oppression. It's part of living in this world. And then the, the last notion is, is probably those who are grieved or mourning for their sin or the sin of others around them. They're mourning for sin. And, and I, when I got here, I just, just had to ask, even myself, when's the last time, Todd, you wept over your own sin? Think about the word mourning. M-O-U-R, not when the sun comes up. Mourning or for sin. Have you ever mourned for your sin? Have you discovered you've hurt someone because of your own either carelessness or callousness? You you have deeply wounded someone. And and did you have you mourned over the pain that you have caused? Or how many of you mourn tears, grief, shed tears of, of contrition and repentance over, Lord, I have, once again, I, I have offended you. I don't want to offend you. I love you. I don't want to give in to sin. And Here I am. If you mourned for your sin, I think that's what is carried here, is a genuine, heartbroken repentance of of sinfulness and the pain that we cause, also the loss. And and James picks up on this notion in chapter 4, verse 8, and he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Right now, neither James nor Jesus is saying, you know, don't be a happy Christian, you just need to go around with a sad face all the time. That, that is not what James is saying. It's not what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. But he is saying there is a time when you need to weep over your sin. There is a time you need to get on your face, turn the pillow over and cry out to God for a cleansing deep within your soul. Wash you clean. There, there needs to be a broken heartedness in all of us over our sin. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The people who are in the kingdom of God are brokenheartedness over the sin and the brokenness in this world. They mourn over the sin in this world. And the promise is, you shall be comforted. Jesus says, you will be comforted. They shall be comforted. It's a, passive, a divine passive in language. And it's a very soft way of saying, it's going to happen. It, it is certain that, that comfort will come. And so don't think that it won't. So I just ask you, are, do you mourn over your own sin, the brokenness around us, deeply spiritually moved by the sinfulness that we still struggle with? That, that's part of a description of the people of the kingdom of God. And the third beatitude is in verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That struck me when I first read it. Blessed are the meek, for several reasons it struck me. First of all, meek inherit nothing, right? Meek people get run over at work. Meek people have everything taken from them. Because if you don't, you don't hold on to it for yourself, it's gonna get, you're going to be taken away, right? That's why this is not for non-believers, This is not for the people who are not a part of the kingdom because this does not make sense. This kind of stuff is nonsense when you come to Scripture. But if you're a person of God and you have the Spirit of God, meekness shall inherit the earth. And he doesn't say you'll inherit the heavenly kingdom. He says the earth. He's already said people in the kingdom inherit the kingdom of God, the heavenly realm, but now the earth? Meaning there's going to be... Temporal blessings as well as eternal blessings to the people of God, right? There there are blessings that come to the people of God here and now when you're walking with the Lord that he gives to his children. God blesses his children through each other. And sometimes it's just a kind word or a gift. It's, It's Christians being generous with each other, taking care of needs, some of you are... This happened to me last week. I, there was an issue about which I was praying, and it was about a temporal, physical thing. A non-necessary thing, by the way. And I was praying, Lord, I, I, I kind of... It's time. I need this. I kind of... I don't really need it, but it would it'd be nice to have. And somebody gave it to me without even asking. Just gave me. Here, I have something for you. I don't know if you can use this or not. But it was a blessing. Right? We, we bless one another... In temporal ways. And here the meek shall inherit the earth. And then meek. (laughs) So Jesus is quoting scripture here. He's quoting Psalm 37. Right? Whenever Jesus is preaching. He's probably got Old Testament scripture in his mind. So let's go back to Psalm 37. Somebody preached on it this summer. I can't remember who it was. But when we went through the summer in the Psalms. This was was part of it. I'll just read three verses. And the last one is the one that Jesus quotes. And notice the comparison. There's a comparison here between two kinds of people. The evildoers shall be cut off, in verse 9, 37, 9. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. There's that phrase, inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more, though they look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So you see, meek people are, are parallel to righteous people. Right? The wicked people will be cut off, but the meek that will wait. They will wait and they will inherit the land. The meek are those who are patient. The meek are those who are righteous. They're not self-promoting. They're not arrogant. They're not haughty. They're waiting on the Lord to give them what they need. And so the promise here is it will be granted. The the blessings of the land will be given if we are patient and meek. And how many of you, you think of meek and you hear weak? Meek does not mean weak. Moses was held out as the meekest person. I think it's in uh, Numbers chapter 12. Meekest person alive at his time. Jesus is also portrayed as a meek person by Paul. Neither of them are weak. Moses was not a weak coward, neither was Jesus. So um, I think the best definition I have heard of of meekness is strength under control. It is is having strength and wisdom and and knowing when to use it and when not to. Aristotle's golden mean, by the way. It's it's strength under control. And and meekness entails a kind of calm um, self-control that is gentle. You think of a meek person. This is, this is a person who could, like Jesus is meek. He can blast you out of the universe. And he doesn't. He's, he's meek. His, his strength is under control. He's using his qualities for goodness and gentleness. And further in Psalm 37, a couple more examples of, of flesh this out of what does it mean to be meek. Psalm 37 also says meek people are not anxious over what the wicked do. They don't get tore up. About wicked people. They don't worry. They're not worriers. They're not filled with anxiety. They trust in the Lord and do good. So there is action behind them. They are still before the Lord. They refrain from anger, is also mentioned about meek people. So there's no ranting and raving here. It's people in the kingdom of God are blessed because of the, this blessing of, of God that comes. So their their meekness is blessed. So no worries, no anxiety. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God will give you what you need when you need it. So rest in Him. No no need for self-promotion and arrogance and and, uh, putting yourself out there. There's a sense of quiet trust and waiting upon the Lord. And then lastly, fourth, uh, verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, it struck me here, I, I don't think any of us probably in our culture have, have really and deeply experienced hunger or thirst. But there, there is a sense in which first century people struggle much more in finding daily necessities than we do. And so Jesus is speaking to a people who know deprivation. And I think we have to struggle a little bit to get our heads around it because we can just go to the grocery store and get whatever you need. We don't hunger or thirst. But if you desire something earnestly, which is what I think Jesus is talking about, when you hunger and thirst, he's saying when you desire righteousness, like you desire food and water, and you go after righteousness with, like your life depended on it, you'll be satisfied. There's a satisfaction that will come to that kind of pursuit of righteousness, an earnest yearning for it. Now, I thought about the only time in my life when I would say I have really experienced thirst was on about an eight-hour hike with some of my buddies who we decided to get to the tallest mountain we could see. We're going to get on the top and have lunch and then come down. And we made it to the top, had lunch, and on our way down, we got lost. I couldn't get down the other side of the mountain and, and it... You know, the three-hour hike turned into a, you know, the three-day tour. And all the water was out, uh, for, and it was hot. It was in the middle of summer. We were sweating. Everything was gone. It was, it was miserable for a long period of time. We just, Can we get off the stupid mountain? There's cliffs and rock face everywhere. We just couldn't move. Finally, we're, we're going around the edge, and after about eight hours or so, I, I can't remember exactly, it was seven or eight hours, I was so thirsty. So thirsty. And, and I came around the corner, and there's this crock between two slabs of rock. And there was a little drippy moss kind of overhang. And out of the moss was dripping water. Drip, drip. And I stopped and just stared at it. And then I noticed my, my buddies who are with me are, are behind me staring at this little drip, drip of, of mossy seepage. And I realized what we were all three doing. We were planning, who's going to go first? I, I was that thirsty, I was considering licking a rock. And, and I just, how energetic of a pursuit do we have towards righteousness? Right? When you want something, you probably know how to get it. When I need chocolate-covered peanuts, I know where to find them. And if I'm hungry for them, I will get them in, in plenteous supply. My kid, kids are laughing. They know. I know where the Walgreens is and those double dipped chocolate covered peanuts. I know where they are in the aisle. I go after them. What about righteousness? Is that on your grocery list? Righteousness. I need to pursue that. Am I, am I going after righteousness like I go after supper? Do I go after righteousness? like my favorite drink. I find this very convicting. And and this is the call of a description of the Christian. It is a yearning for righteousness as deep as you yearn for food and water. Is that present in your life? Jesus is saying that ought to mark the people of God. A hunger and a thirst for righteousness. So let me, let me conclude. What have we seen? We see Jesus sit down and teach his disciples. He's explaining the character of the qualities of those who are in the kingdom and that they come with great blessings. I think that's the word I want you to go home with is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God is a God who blesses his children. He he pours out blessings on his people if we are embracing these qualities that we hear. So are we mourning over the sin in our lives and that is present among us? Are we Are we seeking a kind of disposition of character, of quiet trust in the Lord, waiting on Him to give us what we need, talking to Him about that, but waiting on Him, and then hungering and thirsting for righteousness? If these qualities are yours and are increasing, you will never be fruitless, and you will always be productive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to stop for a moment and ask you, for those of us in this room who are your children, we simply want to say, would you let these qualities be present in our lives? Let this character be seen as good. May we align our thinking with your speaking Jesus and if meekness seems reprehensible to us then I pray that you correct us if being in spiritual poverty having no righteousness of our own to have any kind of confidence in seems confusing then I pray Lord Jesus would you give us a deeper conscious conviction of your righteousness and a deeper joy in your righteousness And and Lord if we are not mourning over the sin in our lives. And I pray, would you, would you break our hearts for the sin that yet remains in us? Would you transform us, Lord Jesus? And would you please drive into our hearts a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? And Lord, let your spirit do all of these things within us. May we be willing to open up our hearts to you right now and simply say lord shine your light into our souls father expose what we need to let go of and let us cling to you for the blessings that are pronounced here because these are ours as your children and i pray that we would have an ever increasing appetite for the things that you bless And that you praise and a decreasing appetite about the things that we just simply want for ourselves. God, make our wants to be like your wants. Let our hearts love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen.